Wonderful to see you today, and uh, today we're going to get to the heart of the book of Leviticus, and I'm just so privileged to have this opportunity to share with you about the day, Yom Kippur. In the fall of 2015, I had the privilege of taking my daughter Julie to Israel with us, with me, and uh, we had a wonderful eight days there. And uh, this was a major sacrifice for her to leave her boys for eight days. She's done it before, but she just was really reluctant. But finally, she gave in and decided she'd come with me. And she had a great, great time, except for our evenings when we'd go to sleep and uh, I would laugh and sing and talk in my sleep. And then she claimed that I snored in my sleep, and I'll never admit to that. But in any case, we just had a really great time. And my intent for this particular trip was to be there during the festival of Sukkot, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, because it's just unique there when they set up all these tents and huts and and, uh, tabernacles, if you will, all over the country. In fact, this still takes place to this day all over the world. You can find these things in New York City, in Los Angeles, in Australia, in Latin America, wherever Jews gather, there are tabernacles, if you will. And so, unfortunately, I had totally forgotten in our trip that Yom Kippur comes just five days before Sukkot. And we landed on the day before Yom Kippur. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but what I discovered is that the day before Yom Kippur, everything shuts down at 2 p.m. the day before. We had arrived at about 10.15 in the morning, so we had a few hours. I knew by that time that we'd be staying in Tel Aviv, and we had just a fabulous time in Tel Aviv on Yom Kippur, a really unique time that I never uh, believed that I would see. We, but we did lose a whole day in our touring. But um, everything stops in uh, Israel on Yom Kippur, everything. Every motorized vehicle, every uh, motor scooter, Everything stops in the whole country. Here's a picture of me in Tel Aviv uh, on Yom Kippur. This is the main road in Tel Aviv right across from the beach. And at this particular time we caught, there were no people around, but there were lots of people around. Uh, but nothing, nothing except skateboards and bicycles and people. We had the joy of just tra- traveling all over Tel Aviv like that with the people. And uh, so, uh, it's a special, special holy day. I just learned this morning from uh, Kinji that uh, he's been through about 13 Yom Kippur services, and um, Yom Kippur in today's world, in, in Israel and really around the world, is so special that in New York, for example, in the synagogues, they sell tickets so that you can get in, $1,000 a ticket to get into the synagogue to celebrate Yom Kippur. And uh, so Yom Kippur is like Christmas and Easter put together for us. Uh, You may not be an observant Jew or a practicing Jew at all, but you're there for the high holy days, especially Yom Kippur. So they take it very, very seriously. And the, the night before, you know, they're praying then, they have services all day long, the whole day, they're expressing their repentance Uh, to the Lord. Now, 10 days before Yom Kippur is Rosh Hashanah. The whole month of Elul, there's a trumpet that is blown. This still takes place in Israel today. The trumpets will sound for the whole month of Elul up till uh, Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the signal that you better start getting your life in order. And then for the next 10 days, they call these the days of terror. 
These days of terror mean that you're supposed to get your life straightened out before God so that on Yom Kippur, you will not be blotted out or your life will not be taken from you. And many observant Jews are very, very terrified about this and they take it very, very seriously. I find that a little bit odd because uh, there are many non-observant Jews, those who don't practice whatsoever, and they're not particularly worried about Yom Kippur, and they live the next year anyway. But in any case, that's the practicing Jew's point of view. In the earliest days of the Old Covenant, that is, um, the Old Testament, uh, and Pastor Errol taught us so well last week about the moral law and the civil law and the ceremonial law, uh, the Day Atonement was taken even more seriously. It, it was just a critical, crit it was the center. It was everything revolved around the Day of Atonement from beginning of the year to the end of the year. And so with that, we're going to look at our central truth for the morning and then take a real careful look at what's involved in that day on Yom Kippur. I want to suggest to you today that this is Theology 801. I apologize for that, but being such an important part of, of the Bible and of really our story, uh, it, we, we have to just take a good hard look at what it is. But here's the central truth for the day, and you'll see why this is important at the end of the message especially. Let us outdo each other in God's way as we eagerly await the last day. They're tied together. Yom Kippur was so important in Israel's history that instead of being called Yom Kippur, it was simply called Yom, the day. And everybody understood what that was talking about. And as I said earlier, it was downright scary to the Israelis. Uh, so on Yom Kippur, they, the people would pray in great repentance and prayer and they'd make a renewed commitment to good deeds and to charity. And the Jewish people take their role as a light to the world really, really seriously. And that relates to what we're talking about here. As Christians, we're to be light to the world as well. And they deeply believe in good works especially, even for their enemies. And they call their mission to the world tikkun olam. You might hear that someday, tikkun olam. That's their mission to be light to the world. And uh, so uh, we'll uh, look at uh, this uh, in a very critical way in the next few minutes. Yom Kippur, the ritual as it took place in Moses' day. First of all, just as today, there was no work and no food for the nation. It was a day of rest. It's the only day that was a total day of rest and fasting that was demanded by God and they took that seriously. The night before, the high priest stays in the temple. He's getting his life, making sure that his life is absolutely right for what was going to follow. Because if he wasn't right in what he did, everything was going to go wrong. It was going to be bad for the whole nation of people. So it was important for him. And then he comes out and he does the regular daily offering, so do the other priests, and so that doesn't stop. The regular offerings for the people of Israel continue. But the priest then takes on his responsibilities, and for each new responsibility, there's a change of clothes. And he changes his clothes five times, and he bathes five times just to make sure that symbolically that he is clean. 
He's clean before he goes in to that holy of holies. And he wears white linens, not multicolored clothing. He normally would wear gold or purple or blue. But in this particular case, he wears white linens like the rest of the priests to identify with the people and the rest of the priests. And it reminds me of the marriage supper of the Lamb spoken about in Revelation where we will be in white robes at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Very interesting comparison. And then he uh, takes a bull and he offers that bull on the altar for him and his family's sins in the Holy of Holies. And so the people are watching carefully to make sure that he comes out. Because if he doesn't come, if he's struck dead, now you know, two of his sons, two of Aaron's sons were struck dead because they offered strange fire. He can't take a risk of, of Aaron not coming out of that temple or out of that tabernacle. So he goes in with his sacrifice. Then he comes out. And when he comes out, there are two goats ready for him. And he casts lots. He, cast lots to see which one is going to be the goat for God and which is going to be the goat for Azazel. The goat for God is going to die. The goat Azazel is going to live. He's going to go out into the wilderness. And then he sacrifices the Yahweh goat. And then we see that he takes that blood from the sacrifice of the Yahweh goat and he sprinkles the goat's blood on the veil, on the ark, and the altar to cleanse the whole temple of the nation's sins. And we have to talk about this. This is important. I'll get to that in just a couple of minutes. Then he comes out again. He places both hands. This is really important. He places both hands on Azazel's head to cleanse the nation of their sins. First the tabernacle, now the nation. And then Azazel, the scapegoat, is led to the wilderness by a very important man, man who's chosen for his qualities of holiness and goodness and so forth. All right. Now, out of this, we have two mysteries that we have to solve. And the first mystery has to do with Azazel. Who or what is Azazel? And uh, what does it mean? So let's take a careful look at Azazel. First of all, there are three views about who Azazel is. The first one, a place in the wilderness. The New Living Translation, for example, says... Uh, take him to the wilderness of Azazel. And so some say, well, that's it. It was the wilderness. Uh, others say, no, it was Jesus because he was our scapegoat when he died outside the city gates. The problem with that is that Azazel didn't die. Azazel was alive and led out to the wilderness and let go. And so there are others who believe that Satan was Azazel because he was the tempter who caused man to sin. So the question is, which is right? We honestly don't know. But you might be surprised to learn that of the scholars in the text that I studied in particular, uh, that Satan is Azazel, which seems really strange. But let me see if I can explain that to you. One of the evidences for Azazel being that scapegoat comes from the book of Enoch. Now, the book of Enoch is not an inspired book of the Bible, but it is quoted in the Bible several times. And so it was considered a very important piece of literature by Moses, by Peter, by John in the book of Revelation. And so it's something that we can pay attention to. 
Um, so uh, the book of Enoch says, look at what Azazel has done, who hath taught all unrighteousness on earth and revealed the eternal secrets which were made and kept in heaven, which men were striving to learn. And Semjaza, who taught spells to whom you gave authority to rule over his associates, Azazel Semjaza. And they've gone to the daughters of the men on earth and have had sex with the women and have defiled themselves and revealed to them all kinds of sins. And the women have borne giants and the whole earth has thereby been filled with blood and unrighteousness. And we read about that in Genesis chapter 6. Moses wrote Genesis chapter 6. And he talks about the angels uh, coming and cohabiting with uh, the women, and out of them came the Nephilim. And then God says that the wickedness of the earth was so great that he regretted that he'd ever made man, and then up pops Noah, and then you have the flood, and God destroys destroys the whole world because of what uh, Azazel and Semjaza had done. And so God tells Raphael, another angel, a good angel, to lock Azazel and Semjaza up and put them away. Now, that probably referred to the end times more than that particular time. We read in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, then the angel grabbed the dragon, that old snake who is the devil and Satan, and tied him up for a thousand years. Then he threw him into the bottomless pit, closed it, and locked it over him. The angel did this so he could not trick the people of the earth anymore until the thousand years were ended, and a thousand years he must be set free for a short time. So Azazel and Semjaza were locked up because they had tricked the whole world, even to the point where God had to eliminate the people of the world. It was a terrible, terrible thing. You can read about the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 16. Very interesting comparison. Now let me show you a picture that I think is just absolutely amazing. This is Mount Hermon from 85 miles at least uh, up, in the, uh, up in space. And if you look very closely, you can see the head of a goat. Take a look. You see it? How many see the head of a goat? Okay, some of our artists probably can, can see that. You see the goat? All right, let's look at the next slide. Ah, now, how many see the goat? <laughs> well, anyway, go back. Let's folks see there. Can you kind of see? You see the nose down here in the mouth? The eye up there? and ear going up like that, that's the top of Mount Hermon. Now, Enoch says that there were 200 angels led by Azazel and Semjaza who came down to Mount Hermon. And from there they spread out, and that's when they got involved with the sons of, with the daughters of men. And so God puts that on Mount Hermon, a goat, before the world began. You think God knows what he's doing? I I think that's, you could say, oh, well, it's just a coincidence, just an accident. I don't know, not for me. You wanna argue with me about that later? We'll do it, okay. 
Now that's the first mystery. Who or what is Azazel? The second mystery is the temple cleansing. Why? Let's look at that. Uh, When the priests offered the sacrifices for individuals, listen very carefully, they transferred the guilt of the people to themselves, and they took that guilt into the holy place where God resided. They do the sacrifices, the guilt comes on them. Secondly, the person's sin or sins was forgiven until his next sin and the next offering. Of course, we said a few weeks ago that they, they fell away from all of that and they went to idol worship and Baal worship and so forth. But in any case, that was the system. But in the tabernacle or the, 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 te- but the tabernacle or the temple was defiled by the sins of all who made sacrifices and it had to be cleansed once a year. Friends, this is the simplest way I can explain a complex reality. That this is true is spelled out clearly in Leviticus chapter 16, 19, 20, and 16, 19, and 20. It's very important for us. Now, here's what I have to ask you to stick with me. You'll need your thinking caps on for now, but I'm laying the foundation. I'm setting the table. This will make sense in a few minutes. Now, let me suggest to you something I think is just really remarkable. I love reading the Word of God because it's like a novel. As a matter of fact, this fall, we're going to be doing something. I hadn't announced this to the other uh, groups, but we're going to be doing a, a series pretty much the whole fall and winter called The Story. And we have a book. We're going to sell books to you that reads the Bible like a story, like a novel. It's going to be fascinating. But in any case, you can read the Bible as a war story. And a love war story with the antagonist with great love and the, uh, the protagonist with great love and the antagonist great hate. And then you have, you know, various crises that take place, the ups and downs uh, throughout the history of Israel. And then you come to the climax. The climax is Jesus on the cross. And Satan thinks the war is over. God says No. The war is over, but not for you. And so then we have the denouement and the rest of the gospel or the rest of the Bible ending with the end of the story in the book of Revelation. And we're going to see that in just a couple of minutes too. But as you read the Bible, you have to see these different themes woven through love and warfare. So how does all this relate to us today? That's the question that we have to answer. You know, that's, that's the biblical framework. How does it fit us? So listen carefully. When Moses was given the design for the tabernacle by God on Mount Sinai, God told Moses explicitly that this tabernacle was a copy of the real tabernacle in heaven. Amazing. In addition, the Bible makes it clear that God is keeping record books on our lives and that someday we're going to be judged for all our works and even our idle words. Jesus said that. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 32 and 33, Moses intercedes for the people whom God wants to destroy. He'd just gotten fed up with them. And he says, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, 
then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And all the people who belonged to this world worshipped the beast, probably Azazel. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, the book that belongs to the Lamb who was slaughtered. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, two sets of books. Those in the book of life and those in the books of death. And there's a book, you have a book, recording all your good, recording all your evil. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we don't have to worry about our sins And I'm going to explain that in just a second. But those who are not in Christ, who don't know Christ, are going to be at the great white throne judgment, and they have no hope of any kind. It's too late then. So now we have to go to Hebrews chapter 9 to find Jesus going into the archetype, the real, the real tabernacle in heaven. And believe it or not, It must be purified too. Look at what it says. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. What on earth can this mean? Well, it has to do with the sins that had accumulated in the books, as it were, in the tabernacle, which got cleansed every year at Yom Kippur. Do you remember how the people repented of their sins on Rosh Hashanah? And then there were 10 days of terror, during which they wondered if their sins would in fact be cleansed on Yom Kippur, and they could expect a sweet joyful life serving the king of heaven for another year? In the same way, our sins have been recorded in our books, and we can confidently anticipate a final cleansing on the day, Yom Kippur, when Jesus returns to judge the whole world. Yes, our sins have been forgiven. Our consciences have, made, have been made clear, unlike the Old Testament saints, They never got rid of the guilt of their sins ever by those sacrifices. But ours, our consciences are clear. And there's a day coming when we will stand before God Almighty. As believers, it will be the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus will be there. And Jesus will say of us to the Father, cleansed, Father, paid for. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's Jesus' role as the high priest. He stands up, and every day he intercedes for us in our sin. 
And he says, Father, that's been cleansed. I understand what they're going through. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on them. Fully cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross. Let's see if we can make this really clear. Have you ever wondered what Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 meant? That bothered me for many, many years till I started putting it together with Yom Kippur. Look at it. And I'm certain that God, who began the good work within you, has he begun that good work within you? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If so, he began it. Well, look what's going to happen. We'll continue his work, keep working on you, until it is what? Finally finished. On when? The day. The day when Christ Jesus returns. Let's make this even more explicit. Hebrews chapter 9. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again not to deal with our sins, he's writing to Christians, but to bring salvation, full cleansing, to all who are eagerly waiting for him. In the Old Testament, in Aaron's day, the people were standing around eagerly waiting for him to come out of the tabernacle because if he didn't, they were doomed. And so we are eagerly waiting for our Lord Jesus to return to bring salvation. We have nothing to fear if we're in right standing with the Lord Jesus. And just as the people repented in Rosh Hashanah, so we should be repenting of our sin on a daily basis. We don't have to wait till Yom Kippur. We can repent and confess our sin every day of the year. Praise God we know that Jesus is coming. And we can't wait to see him. And now we're ready for our central truth again. What does all this have to do with us? Let us outdo each other in God's way as we eagerly await the last day. Jewish people, a light to the world. Tikkun olam. Same for us. Look at verses Hebrews chapter 9, 23 and following. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. He's coming again. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. There it is again, the day. Yom Kippur. Ken Taylor put it this way, in response to all he has done for us, let us outdo each other in being helpful and kind to each other and in doing good. Do you see that day approaching, friends? I think that we, if, if we don't see that day approaching, we're just not paying attention. It should be obvious to all but the most obtuse, you might say, <laughs> that Jesus is coming again. Of course, it's also obvious 
that we can't spur one another on to love and good deeds, and we can't encourage each other if we're not meeting. Let us not give up a meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It's with great sadness I tell you that in today's Christian world, the average attendance is about one out of two, and some only make it one out of four. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, I'm just trying to express what's true. But I also am trying to say that in the days before Jesus comes, many, and I believe this, we're at least partially gonna be in some unbelievably hard days. Persecution against Christians is gonna increase. And then we as pastors are not gonna to have to beg you to come to services, you're going to, you're going to need, you're gonna to want to come to be encouraged, to make it through another day. Why not start now? Why shouldn't we be doing that right now? Spur one another on toward love and good deeds so that we can be a light to the world. And being that light, we draw people to the light of the world, the Lord Jesus. So dear Christian friends, we're asking again, are you ready? Whole book of Leviticus, we're talking about God's holiness. By the way, you notice God, God is so fussy about sin that even the clothing or the person of the priest and the whole tabernacle has to be cleansed. We, we don't even think much about sin. We, we hardly notice. In fact, a lot of times we just excuse it but God takes it unbelievably seriously. And he wants us to live holy lives and he's given us the provision of living holy lives through the Lord Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. Are you ready? Or are you just play acting? God wants real, not phonies, not fakes, not faithless, but real. But what about those who perhaps have never come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, have never invited him into their life to make him their new leader and their forgiver? The Word of God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now, today is the day of salvation. You're not promised another day. My brother-in-law, a hardy man, went to bed the, night, the day before. He drove 150 miles with his wife on the back of a motor trike. Next morning, got up, stumbled two feet, fell on the ground, never regained consciousness. You're not promised another day. So if you're waiting, I remember my brother many years ago saying, well, David, I know, I know that, you know, Jesus is the Savior, and, and, and I'll get right with him someday. I said to him, Dan, you, don't, you, you have no idea whether you'll get another day. Thank God that he did turn back to the Lord Jesus. He's a wonderful servant of the Lord today. So the day to do that is right now. This is the day for you. And I implore you 
to come to the Lord Jesus and confess your sin. Invite him to be the leader of your life. The day is coming. Your day is now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that your scripture is so clear. From beginning to end, you are consistent in your message that you are holy and we are not. But you have made provision long ago promising then keeping your promise with Jesus at the cross, taking our sin on him so that we might live with you forever. That's the best news any human being could ever hear. Thank you for it, Lord. And now because of your sacrifice, we bring our offerings to you. A small sacrifice for us, itty bitty for us, cost you everything. So bless these offerings, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.